And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. A lot of people have said ta Coates is the leading writer on race in America today. I think that cheats him. He's really perhaps the leading writer in America today. His books, Between the World and Me, uh, and his latest, We Were Eight Years in Power, are so brilliantly written that they just leave you slack-jawed. He has uh, an amazing gift for narrative, uh, for depicting people as they are, uh, for uh, cutting to the core uh, of issues, usually extraordinarily well uh, researched. Uh, I can't say enough about his work. ta Coates came to speak at the University of Chicago about his new book uh, this week, and I took the opportunity to sit down with him and talk about his journey and where America is today post-Obama in the era of Trump. Tanahasi Coates, so good uh, to be with you and have you here at the University of Chicago. Um, you've written a lot about the guy that I worked for, uh, Barack Obama. Yes. And I remember the, the day that Obama got a call in 2004 when he was asked to uh, give that speech at the Democratic Convention in Boston that made him a prominent national figure overnight. And when he hung up the phone after getting the offer, he said, I know what I want to write. And I said, well, what do you want to write? He says, I want to talk about my story as part of the larger American story. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that as I uh, uh, read uh, your essay, your latest essay on him, um, because you, you've spent your much of your life as a writer uh, writing about your story as part of the larger American story. And it's a, it seems like... A different story in in many ways. Uh, so why don't we start with your story as you see it as part of the larger American story, and how does that differ from uh, the story that the president told? That's a great question. Uh, well, I, I want to say something. I just want to start out with a, with a, with a basic uh, premise or just a, a foundation, and that is that it has always been true that within the African American experience, there have been different stories. Um, Frederick Douglass was privileged in a way that, say, Harry Jacobs was not. He had a different story. His father was white and likely, you know, one of somebody with particular powers on, on the plantation. That, that meant something different for him for how he interacted, the kind of privileges he enjoyed. And you can run this, you know, across the board. I say that to say because um, I think one of the things that's happened with Obama, at least early on, and I talk about this in the book, mm -hmm. maybe not so much now, oh, this isn't a black story, this isn't a, and I just completely disagree with that because I think it minimizes the range of what black stories actually are, and there, there, there are quite a few. Uh, Malcolm X's story is way, way different than, than Martin Luther King's story. Malcolm X had encounters with white people, went to school with white people at a very, very young age. Martin Luther King raised ensconced in a, in a middle-class black community in Atlanta. Yeah, and you, uh, you actually, um, uh, let me see, I'm thumbing through uh, uh, some of the book bookmarks that I made here. You said um, uh, the programs Obama 
favored would advance white America, too. And without specific commitment to equality, there's no guarantee that the programs would eschew discrimination. Obama's solution relies on goodwill that his own personal history tells him exists in, right. the, large, in the larger country. My own history tells me something different. The large numbers of black men in jail, for instance, are not just the result of poor policy, but of not seeing those men as human. Right. Um, but ta- I, I really didn't – I, I wanted to get into it uh, to for you – just and I know you've talked about this and written so eloquently about it, but talk about your sort of coming, your awareness and how it grew over time, and what your experience in West Baltimore uh, taught you. Yeah, so uh, my particular black story begins um, in uh, the shadow of the civil rights movement. Um, I guess at about you know I was born in 1975 at a period that people are probably beginning to realize that things did not go as far as they had wanted. Uh, my father was from a particular wing of of, of that movement, um, the Black Power Socialist Marxist you know wing. Uh, he was in the Black Panther Party, so that he didn't the, start. He was he served and he was uh, in the military in Vietnam. Um, he became uh, politically conscious. While in Vietnam, uh, came home and wanted to be politically active and was looking for any any sort of organization that was allow uh, would allow him to do that. Um, what was it about his experience in Vietnam that I don't want to say radicalized him because that has no, a different connotation? No, I think that's today. correct. Though yeah. I actually think that's the right word. Uh-huh. Um, military service, you know, has historically had this uh, effect on people. Um, from time to time. It's a phenomenon, you know, going all the way back to George Washington, honestly. Um, I think when you're on the front lines, like in my dad's case, um, you see that you're willing to give your life for something. And when you're black, you're forced to measure um, that against, you know, that particular social commitment, that part of of, of a social contract with the other end of it. Um, and that became painfully clear clear to my dad. He went into Vietnam, you know, with as you know, he said visions of being John Wayne. You know, he'd been raised on war movies and you know, he was excited, he was going off on, on, on a big adventure. And what he became very clear on was how A the people in the army regarded him, how disposable he was. Uh, and uh, you know, I think a very keen awareness that he was being sent over to uh kill, pacify, however you're gonna put it other people of color. And that, you know, it's one thing to know that theoretically, but to see it, you know what I mean? To actually be confronted with it, you know, has some effects, you know, and it had effects on my dad. And so he came back radicalized. I I think that's, that's correct. You know, looking for um, any sort of political movement. The one he found was the Black Panther Party in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, Two things came out of that. They're very, very important. Um, uh, My dad's, uh, Adoration, I guess is the best word, almost beautification, I would say, of Malcolm X, which played a huge role in my life. But the second piece was my dad had always been a reader. And it was in the Black Panther Party that he first found a community of other people who were reading other things and were interested in having conversations about political theory. And so that informed my own uh, childhood quite a bit. Malcolm X as, as this figure of, of, of defiance, this notion that um, just because the world says, you know, we're going one way doesn't mean you necessarily have to. Um, the notion that you, you know, as an African-American may not be as tied 
uh, to the larger American populace in a way that the world, you know, claims to be. And in fact, history offers an argument for something else. Um, and that one should be politically aware. One should be politically literate. One should read books about black history, about black politics. One should watch the news and read the newspaper. You know, it was my dad who first introduced me to the Wall Street Journal, you know, and, and the center column. You know what I mean? Because you mm-hmm. have to know what those things are. You should read the New York Times. You should read the Washington Post. And so my life was filled with that. But he, it, in fact, uh, became... A, a, a distributor, a, he was a, a publisher, publisher yes, of, yes. of mm-hmm. books. Yep, he owned uh, a bookstore first, and then he became a, a publisher. And you know, books were very important. Books were tools of liberation. This is you know what I was told, and I needed to hear that because the, the same thing that was happening, the other thing that was happening at that time was a uh, crack era Baltimore or crack era. America, I guess, was was basically at its height, and with it, you know, uh, uh, a rise in violence, gun violence, particularly. Um, just to, uh, as you know, I talked in a previous book, between the world and me, mm-hmm. a ton of fear in in, in the African American community that, that I grew up in, and I couldn't understand why, in a way that satisfied my curiosity. Uh, people had explanations, you know, people around say, "Oh, the white man," you know. <laughs> That sort of thing. Yes, because the white man did it. But what does that mean? What, 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 like I heard that. But what specifically does that mean? You know what I mean? And is that even true? You know? And so I was constantly reading. You know what I mean? Like constantly searching. L- 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 let me a- a- ask you, when you talk about what the environment was like in Baltimore mm-hmm. at that time and, and the, the, the element of fear, you write about that. Uh, and you write about your own fears mm-hmm. and the fact that you weren't, you know, exactly a pugilist. Mm-mm, no, uh, no, by no means. <laughs> but that uh, a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, but lovers got <laughs> lovers got. Oh yeah, beaten yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That it didn't didn't tend to end well for you. And and this is, um, I think, one of the saddest aspects. Uh, there was a, I think, a um, a view of the street or view of kids. Who grew up like that? That sort of monochrome, you know, being, you know, a large part is because of the face that kids uh, put on. But within that, there, there are great variety of, of, of personalities. You know, people who other in other environments would be doing completely different things. Um, but the streets socialize you to comport yourself a certain way uh, to, to, to ward off violence. And I learned that I wasn't, you know, it wasn't natural for me. It wasn't something I wanted to be. It wasn't somebody I, I wanted to be. But I certainly learned to carry myself eventually, you know, after getting pounded on a few times, um, a certain way. Um, I learned to accept violence. You know, there's stories that I tell now that sound horrible. You know, one of them in particular in the book um, that did not feel so horrible at the time because it happened to everybody I was around. You know, it was just the normal day to day of living in, you know, that, that particular neighborhood and, you know, going to those schools and to, I, I don't know. Like, why would you think so much about it if it's just the aspect of your, of, of your life and everyone, you know, knows like, and obviously I had some consciousness that in the larger world, it was not, I knew that, I knew that. And I wondered why, but there was another part of me that also just sort of, okay, accept it. This is the way it is. This is how it is. And I think, um, a lot in my work now. Um, it's one of the reasons why I have a lot of trouble accepting um, some of the praise I get. Because I, I think about how many kids just accepted that reality. 
It just became the reality for them. We're sitting on the south side of Chicago, and if you travel a mile or two in, in any direction, right, you'll run into the same mm-hmm. thing that you're talking about here. What what's the impact on these on these kids? Man, um, the way I, I explain it is as follows. Um, when I was a child, when I was about 12 years old, say I was in, uh, I guess, seventh grade, when I got ready for the day in the morning uh, to go to school, I always say about a third of my brain was occupied with my safety. Um, and that ran the gamut of questions that that, that I had to answer. Um, what was I wearing that day? How was I going to wear it? How was I going to cock my hat? You know, how was I going to wear my coat? How was I going to carry my book bag? You know, one or two straps. Who was I walking with? How many of them was it? Where were they from? Um, once I got to school in class, you know, does this dude, you know, is he trying to, you know, has he got a thing with me? Is he angling on me in a particular way? Um, at lunch, who am I sitting with? Or am I going to avoid the lunchroom entirely and go sit in the library so I don't have to deal with any of these dudes? Um, after school, am I going straight home? Am I cutting through the woods? Am I cutting up towards Liberty Heights? Again, who am I walking with? How many of them? Um, am I going to stay after school a little late, hoping that stuff clears out a little bit? Th- these constant questions. Yeah. Th- which, which kids on you. Shouldn't, nobody should have to do. No, with. no. And kids don't everywhere in America. That's not, a, that's not like how the rest of right. the country is. And, you know, I, I never got this far. But, you know, on top of that, you know, kids get to what, what am I carrying? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What 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 am I what am I doing? But they all emerge out of this thing of how do I protect myself? If I can remember things, if I carry my book bag with two straps, does that connote the idea that I'm a nerd and thus weak? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a, a, just a suite of choices um, that you end up asking yourself, so that the last thing you're thinking about is homework, yeah, or what the teachers say. You know, uh, when uh, Obama was the state senator, right in this district. I remember him saying to me, uh, you know, I go to see these kids in, in kindergarten classes and first mm-hmm. grade classes, and there's a light in their eyes. It's bright. And yep. you say, what do you want to be? And they want to be a lawyer. They want right. to be a doctor. They want to be president of the United right. States. And he said, and then you go back and you see the seventh graders and mm-hmm. the eighth graders. And he says, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, part of it is dealing with with that environment, mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another part of it, I guess, is confronting some of the things that you've written so eloquently about sort of mm. what the what the realization of the barriers mm-hmm. uh, are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're one and the same. You know, I think those two things, they're, they're one and the same. Um, you just, it's like your world shrinks. <laughs> I would say starting at about, like for me, probably about, nine about somewhere about eight or nine it began to happen and then by the time i got to middle school it was like okay you know um i mean honestly one of the great things first about going to howard was realizing how much bigger the world actually was Mm -hmm. howard university yeah going out to howard university and realizing how much bigger the world actually was um and then uh later in life once i got uh, you know as i talk about in this book a little bit of economic security at the atlantic really understanding how big the world was 
um, it, it was a, it was a great <laughs> relief. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, uh, um, obviously you're, you, you had some advantages. You had an exceptional. I did. I, did. Uh, I had two great parents. I had two. And my mom, my mom was a teacher. My mom taught me to read when I was very, very young. I was four years old. Uh, wrote my first essays for my mom. Um, both of my parents encouraged reading. They were very, very on top of it and, you know, and on top of kids. I'm, you know, I'm one of seven. All of my brothers and sisters graduated from college except yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's the incredible thing. You, you know, you write about uh, your sort of lackluster scholastic career, something that I can identify with, by the way. It made me right. feel better about myself. <laughs> but you, you're one of, if not the most, foremost American writer now. Uh, and, but you weren't recognized for that then that people didn't say, no, they thought I was smart though. They did. They thought I was smart and they could not figure out why I, I wouldn't do the work. Like why wouldn't I go through on what was obviously to them, at least, you know, a, a degree of intelligence that was abnormal. Um, and what was the answer to that? <sighs> I had a hard time sitting in class and watching people talk for like an hour. It's very hard for me to do that. It's hard for me now to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I just, it wasn't how, um, it wasn't a learning process that was interesting to me. Um, when I started in journalism, I mean, as, as you well know, journalism is so entrepreneurial. You know, you go find your story. You right. Know, it's up to you. Go do it. You figure out who you got to talk to. Why'd you, you decide, by the way, that you wanted to be a journalist? I didn't. I, um, I was writing, and there was an internship at an alternative paper in D.C., the Washington City paper. It was actually owned by the Chicago Reader at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was writing, like, poetry at the time. And I had done some things for the school newspaper, and they kind of liked that. And I sent it over to them, and they said, all right, here's an internship. And I went in. Um, actually with Jelani Cobb, who's a uh, uh, mm -hmm. staff writer at the New Yorker now. Um, we interned together that summer. And they were like, all right, go find some stories. And I was like, really? That's the whole job? <laughs> like, I just sit here and figure out what's interesting, and then I got to report back to you and write, that's it? Nothing else? I couldn't believe people paid you to do that. Yeah. I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, you know, I started off uh, that way, beginning uh -huh. of my life. Uh-huh. Great, you know, one of the great jobs oh. I, I ever had. You worked for, uh, and I was influenced by my editors. Mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, my dad had died. I was kind of at loose ends, and they took me under mm -hmm. uh, their wing. You you came under uh, the tutelage of one of the great mm -hmm. journalists in our country, uh, yeah. David Carr. Talk about him. Well, he wasn't who he became at that point. Uh, he had... I guess, you know, recently just, you know, been off drugs and he introduced himself as a, you know, recovering crack addict. He always talked about it, it was public. It was not a dark secret. Uh, and he was hard. I mean, he just, Jesus, he was, he was brutal. <laughs> he was an absolutely brutal editor. I, I don't know if anybody's ever seen um, page one, that, that documentary about the New York Times. Yes. Well, I mean, as brutal as he is in that documentary, as brutal as he is in that like scene with those guys from Vice, that's how he was all the time. He I mean, went on to become a legend at the New York Times. He, did. he actually died in the New York Times died newsroom. Died in the New York Times newsroom. He was an uh, incredible uh, reporter, dogged as hell, um, ambitious, uh, a great dude. But as an editor, I mean, he was a tremendous teacher. I mean, it was worth more than any other J school. He would bring in articles from the New Yorker, 
GQ vanity fan. He said, listen, this is the level you should be trying to perform. I expect this out of you. Yeah. You know, um, and that was a period in time that's very different in the media environment that came after it. You know, we had a lot of pages, so you could write at length. You were free to explore. You were encouraged to explore. Um, you were encouraged to tell these huge, beautiful stories. But if I was like I was now, had the kind of opportunities I had then, I would have been a terror. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, it was just, I mean, I, you know, I didn't know what I had in my hands. I didn't understand the opportunity. I didn't realize this was not normal. You know, for somebody to, to be 20 years old and somebody say, go write 8,000 words <laughs> on, you know, local, you know, hyper-local government in Washington, D.C., but make it really interesting. I mean, I just, I had no clue, like, what, you know, I was I was walking into. But I liked it. I did like it a lot. And um, I got incredible training. You know, I just, I just did. I, I had um, huge expectations put on me. You know, I mean, somebody tells you, you know, I, you know, here's a New Yorker, you should write like that. I mean, of course you're not at 20 years old, but somebody with that kind of authority tells you that, you know, you you think, okay, maybe I can. Maybe well, it I must can have been that. something in you that he saw. He wasn't randomly choosing people no, he wasn't. and saying, he I'm going to, I'm going to mentor you and turn you into oh. a, a major magazine writer. Yeah. But having said that, I was certainly not the best journalist there. Um, there were a number of people who were there at the time, actually. Jake Tapper uh, was there. Is that right? Yeah. Jake used to work there. Mm-hmm. Jake, Jake was on staff there. Um, we had a lot of fun. Uh, no, there were there were there were a number of really wow. really talented people. We're gonna take a short break, and we'll be right back with sure. Tanahasi Coates. You 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 write powerful powerful uh, arguments, expositions, um, but. I'm just sticking with the story about you as a young journalist. The mm-hmm. thing that I so love about your writing is narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I always say I've spent my life as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you tell your own story and mm-hmm. other people's stories mm-hmm. well. Did that was that part of that early experience? Did you? Yeah, yeah. Because I think I came I came in the city paper with um, a particular ability to write in the first person really well. Um, but that was not enough to hold a job there. You had to learn how to report and, and thus had to learn how to tell other people's stories. And I think that's what saved me from being a pure memoirist or just a, just straight up, you know, essayist or critic or whatever. And I'm so happy that happened. Um, it really, uh, it deepened me, it broadened me, you know, um, the last real essay in the book before the epilogue, um, my president was black. Like I, I wouldn't have been able to do that piece had I not worked for David Carr. I just wouldn't have known how to interview a bunch of people and sew it together into something. We spent quite a bit of time together on that piece, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was was impressed by the assiduousness of that conversation. Um, But uh, uh, you strike me as a pretty introverted person. (laughs) Uh, I mean, like you've said here and elsewhere, uh, I don't know if we said it on the while we were recording <laughs> that you know all of this attention and all of this <laughs> adulation that you're getting, uh, which some people would soak up, and you, you're very averse. To, you're you're uncomfortable with it. I like being. I like that people read the work I do. I like that a lot of people read that. I'm very happy about that. I'm, I'm happy that you know the ideas are getting out there. Um, I am humbled. You know, by say, um, 
the, like when I got the call from MacArthur, I became a MacArthur fellow. It was yes. Very, very it's called a it. genius grant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, not so humble. It's hard to be but, humbled when you get a, yeah. <laughs> a genius grant. Um, I'd rather not be called that. But, um, <laughs> but I do. I, I, you know, when somebody says his $600,000 over the next five years, go, you know, do, do whatever do, you want. Do whatever you want. Um, you have to be humble by that. I was humbled, you know, when I won the national. The, the, yes. So I don't, I don't want to act like I'm like. No, but my question is different. I'm whatever. not asking you. But my question is this. It strikes me that you are pretty introverted, and that and that to be you know what it to is to do what you to do what you do. You really have to you have to be curious, and you have to be able to elicit from people. I am I, clearly, yeah, yeah, and I and I think I'm pretty good at that. I I you know what I like I like watching. I don't like being the center. I like seeing. I like you know. Um, <laughs> I was telling a buddy of mine like um, I took a trip down to South Beach, uh, and I loved watching the insanity down there and the people parading the 60 year old dudes with 30 year old women and i just i don't want to be part of it i don't want you know i don't aspire to drive that car i don't aspire to be with that girl staying up but i love watching it i love i love the scene there's a scene early in that book um i'm sorry early in that piece uh my president was black i went to a concert um at the white house yes and it was just star-studded. And I just loved watching it unfold. Yeah. I, I like stories. I, I really you know, do. Having been at a few of those events, mm-hmm. uh, well, it was fun to read because you kind of captured the whole yeah, the whole gestalt. Oh, that's the, the best thing. part. That's better than argument, honestly. Like yeah. when you see a good scene and you take all your notes and you say, okay, here's what I have. These are all my notes on everything that happened. But this obviously isn't all that happened. Like I, you can never completely capture... Even if you were videotaping everything, which you should not do, but even if you were, because I actually think that kind of messes with the awful. But even if you were, you can never capture everything. You never capture how it smelled, how it sounded. And so what you have is these notes, and you have to stitch it into yeah. literature. I mean, that that's by far the funnest part of my job. When people, um, what, what has happened, though, with um, some of the celebrity and famous, I've lost the ability to do that. So if I show up to watch something, I'm now part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, don't you're like part that. of the celebrity culture now, uh, you, whether you like it or not. I hope that's an overstatement. I, yeah. I, I, I hope I really hope that's an overstatement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I no, I don't. I don't. I, I don't. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy. Yeah. It. I love watching. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be up in it. So you, uh, after your stint at the City Paper, you went up to uh, New York, mm-hmm. and you struggled uh, mightily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what? Brought you up there. I know you and your partner went up, and and, mm-hmm. and she had uh, she had a, she had a uh, she had always wanted to work in fashion magazines, and to do that back then you had to go to New York. And um, I, you know, where did you guys meet? We met at Howard mm-hmm. at Howard, and then she took a job in Delaware as a copy editor. And when we found out we were having a child, I left DC and I moved to Delaware, and I worked for an alternative paper in Philadelphia. That lasted three months. I got fired, I think, a month after my son was born. I mean, literally within weeks of my son being born, I got fired. Um, or forced out, to put it more gently. <laughs> Why? Uh, probably for the same reason I was a bad student. They had notions about what stories were that felt restrictive. I just maybe you were a little spoiled at the city paper. I was totally they, spoiled yeah, at the yeah, city paper. I yeah. thought the city paper was the world, and it wasn't. 
Yeah. And it wasn't. The motivating force when I was at City Paper was, what are you curious about? And I felt like at the job I took in Philadelphia, I don't know what the motive. I remember you had to do an assignment where you had to write, oh my God, this is why I got forced <laughs> out. You had to write about your cubicle. They wanted to, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was like in school when they would give you busy work. Uh-huh. Like, uh, write a short piece about you. I'm not writing about my fucking cubicle. I'm not, I'm not Who would, doing that. Uh, was there a big clamor out there in the reading world for your, for your, a piece on your cubicle? I, I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. So anyway, I got pushed out. And at that point I came home and we talked for a little bit and we had been thinking about trying to slowly make our way to New York anyway. Uh, but at that point, there was nothing left. And I said, well, Kenyatta, um, that's my partner. I said, mm-hmm. there's nothing left for us here. I don't, I don't know what we're here for. You know, we might as well, you know, try to, you know, get out, get out, make our way there. Um, unlike me, she had an actual skill that was in demand. Um, people always need copy editors. So she got a job up there. And while we cobbled together the money to move, she, you know, uh, would stay with friends for a week and come back on the weekend. I would take care of uh, Samari, my son. And after we had enough money, we moved up. And she made 28000 29000 a year, I think. Um, and I made about 400 a year, $400. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, everybody wants to be a writer in New York. And so it was extremely difficult to distinguish yourself. Um, and what would happen though was David Carr was a big shot by them and he was working at the New York times and he used to call me up and he would say, you know, you should come in town and have lunch with me. He'd take me to these restaurants, man. That at the time I was like, wow, this is really nice. Like fancy. Like I ain't, I've never seen it. I mean, I'm in my twenties, right? I'm, you know, less than 10 years out of West Baltimore. I'm like, I've never seen anything like this. You know, in New York was a world I had never seen, everybody, you know, moving fast. You know what I mean? I would come in, man, Jesus, man. And I had never known there was so much money in the world either. Like everywhere looked like money. I mean, I had never seen anything. And he would sit me down and he would say, what are you doing? What what, what do you got going on? You know, um, and he would urge me on and say, listen, man, you can do this. You can, at a time when I felt that I couldn't do it. And the flip side of that was he had been so hard on me when I was younger that I knew he wouldn't bullshit me. So if he said I could do it, probably could do it. And so even though I didn't believe in myself, I believed in him. And that helped a lot. That, that, that helped a lot. He actually hooked me up with The Atlantic. He was the one who got me, you know, plugged in with The Atlantic. And it, it, it just altered my life. You know, I wouldn't be here right now without that. And you started writing a blog that became kind of a community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some years later after that, you know, um, I had a, you know, had to lose a few more jobs before that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I did. I did, I did. And I started on my own. And my dad, you know, would kick me a little bit of money for it. And then, you know, the Atlantic took interest. And I got, well, I wrote for the magazine first. And I got hired, you know, to blog for the Atlantic. And, man, you know, once again, I was like, I can't believe they're going to pay me to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, and that really was the switch. That was the moment when it started to change. That and the fact that uh, Barack Obama got elected. Those two things, I mean, just completely altered the trajectory. Yeah, you read right about that. Why did uh, Obama's election make such a difference for you? I think the broader world was a lot more curious about the world that he claimed to be rooted in. I think um, people just wanted to know. They wanted to know what, how, because how nobody expected. I mean, you know this. Nobody, nobody saw it coming. Maybe you guys saw it coming, but no one else. 
You know what I mean? So I come in. Yeah. And so it's like, what? what? Like, what? Clearly, you know, so it was felt, I think, that, that people, there needed to be people who, who were going to do the reckoning of what had happened and what changed and what this meant and, and articulate that and analyze that and think about that. And I had been thinking about what it meant to be black in America all my life. You know what I mean? And, you know, I had some reporting skills. And so here we were. Here we were. One of the things I want to ask you about what it meant. Uh, and, you know, you've done some uh, powerful writing about that since he left, uh, when he was in office and since he left mm-hmm. office. Before I do, though, I have to ask you one thing about your writing. You uh, write about uh, hip hop and mm-hmm. you, you, you deeply immersed in, in hip hop. Uh, how much did hip hop, uh, impact on your writing? I mean, at what element, were there elements of it that huge, huge, um, it was the literature that I heard that talked about the world I was in. So there were other, it was other literature I admired that I loved, but it wasn't, it didn't speak about my world. Like when I heard Nas, I was like, oh, oh yeah, I know what that is. I, <laughs> I know exactly what that is. You know, so it spoke with elegance in the language that I knew about the world I was living in. Um, it's like if you speak English, French, and Spanish, but French is your native language. And somebody is talking in French about your particular French town. <laughs> It was like that. It was it was mine. You know, um, it wasn't just beautiful. It was beautiful about a life I knew. And I, I it made me feel a certain way. And I felt even after I you know started reporting, I wanted to write in a way that made people feel like that. I wanted people and the feeling was not one of um, joy all the time. It wasn't one of happiness all the time. But it was, you know, um, real. It was. Yeah, it was real, but what is the word? It felt, um, I don't want to say inspirational. Uh, it was a moment of illumination. That's what it was. It was illuminating. Mm-hmm. It was illuminating. It was like things that I knew that I had seen, and to hear somebody capture it in words, it was like, yes, that was how I felt. That was how I felt when I saw that, that boy when I was 11 years old pull out a gun. That, that right there. That's exactly, I couldn't even articulate how it felt until I heard this. You know? and, and how did that inform you as a writer? Did well, you- I knew, I knew. So at the time I was coming up, um, and I started professionally in the mid '90s, um, there was a world of influential magazines, like say, say the New Republic, for instance, um, the Atlantic. Uh, you know, sort of center liberal magazines that I read. That you know, I had a difficult relationship with because I admired what they were doing, but often did not like how they wrote about black people. And I believed black people had interior lives, things that they felt, things that they saw about politics that had not been articulated in a language native to them. And so much like those rappers I was listening to, when I became a writer, I I wanted to, in other words, not just write about Barack Obama, but write about Barack Obama in the way that I heard my community discuss in their private spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted it, and I didn't just want the information that I heard in those private spaces conveyed. I wanted all of the emotion, the feeling, 
You know what I mean? And I wanted to name those emotions so that when those people who were in those conversations read those pieces, they thought, yes, that's how I felt. That's how I, that, that, that's, yes, I, I reckon that that was how it, so I mean, like, you know, again, to go back to that, that piece, you know, that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, my, my president was black. You talk about that party and I wanted people who were at that party to say, I could not have told you it felt like this, but that was how it felt. I recognize it. That was, you know, I feel a certain thing that I can't put into words. But when I read this, I see it in words. And yes, that's how that's how I felt in that moment. Um, when I was writing that piece, I finished it before the election. I finished the rough draft of it before the election. <laughs> kind of messed with the ending, huh? Well, no, actually, no, because I, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I was careful enough to think. I, you know, I was I did not feel that certain. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't feel that certain. Yeah. So it was I had left it open enough that you know it would be very easy to alter it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. All I had to do was alter the light a little bit, like shade it, you know, a different way, you know. So that opening scene had to, as opposed to be celebratory, there had to be some sort of last dance aspect of it, an impending tragedy. So I just had to, you know, just just tilt the light a little bit. Um, But I wanted people to, I always tell the story, and it's actually in that piece. When I was doing that, I listened to Marvin Gaye's Distant Lover over and over and over and over again because it was a wordless feeling in that song, a sense of loss for something that you loved and was, and was leaving and that you were really, really going to miss. And I wanted that to come through in the piece. I wanted the sense of, I, you know, because the year going up to, even before Trump won, I felt so much sadness in the black communities I was in that this had been, that for all of its problems, this had been a magical eight years. This had been incredible. I mean, we... Um, have a narrative and a conversation and a dialogue in our own communities of being embarrassed, even by the people we defend. You know what I mean? I was in D.C. as a political reporter when Marion Barry comes back. Mm-hmm. People defending Marion Barry up one side, down the other. And, and I get it. That's not, you know, I don't blame them for that. But they, in our own private spaces, we'd be like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Smoking crack on camera. Come on. Come on. Now, we didn't want to hear white folks coming in saying X, Y, and Z because we knew they had their stuff, right. da, 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 da. You know what I mean? And we didn't want to hear that from them, you know, and rightfully so because it was, you know, hypocritical. And But at the same time, it's like, come on, man. Like, don't make me have to be in arguments with these people defending you smoking crack on camera. Like, don't make me have to do that, you know? And it always felt like with our leadership, you're always defending people. You know what I mean? Defending their, you know, morally. Like you're defending, you know, your preacher and his sort of sloppy stuff that he's doing, you know, but that's my preacher. And you felt like with Barack and Michelle, you never had to defend them. Like, I don't have to defend them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I, I don't have to Trust make me, any... I do. So, right. Well, you might... I mean, politically, <laughs> yeah. right? You, but, no, but no, morally, but they, you don't have to defend no, them. No, 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 You know what I mean? It's no, not like no, Barack I, got I mean, caught on camera smoke, and then I got to say, well, no, but, you know, you got mistakes, too. I don't, I don't even have to play that game. Yeah. I don't have to do that. You know what I mean? Because in their whole presentation, they're twice as good. They're better than you. You understand what I'm saying? They're better than any... You know what I'm saying? So I don't even have to... And that was beautiful. You know what I mean? Like it was it was just to be liberated from that and that was going away. So I wanted to conjure the, the sense of loss it felt was what did, going away. What did what did his presidency uh, I, I hear what you just said. What does presidency mean in a larger sense? I mean, was it a transient event or were things mm-hmm. was there something irreversible about what his presidency represented? Because you know, you obviously have a a, a very sharp view mm-hmm. of this 
broader narrative of American history, mm -hmm. starting from the original sin of slavery, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that hangs over us today, mm -hmm. and we're reminded of every day in our politics today. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what what was what did Obama leave, uh, and what impact on the community mm -hmm. um, beyond policy? Mm -hmm. um, he left possibility. You know, um, I grew up in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and the first uh, black elected mayor of Baltimore, Maryland, was Kurt Schmoke. Yes. Who was Obama before Obama? <laughs> and yeah. there are tons of these, you know, he's not the only one. You know what I mean? You know, a guy from the community, you know, who related to the community, but, you know, Ivy League educated, top his class, athlete, you know what I mean? Great at everything, you know, comes back to the community, he's going to bridge the gap. But it wasn't Kurt Schmoke's time. You know, and I'm sure then you probably can name tons of other yeah. politicians, maybe Bradley out in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? All of these, you know, sort of predecessors, maybe Harold Washington. You know what I mean? People who it just it wasn't time. Yeah, It wasn't time. And for him, it was time. You know what I mean? The culture and the politics had changed enough. Because I don't think he could have been president 20 years ago. I just well, no question. I don't think he, you know, I obviously I worked with him throughout his career as I worked for Harold Washington. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he could have, his career could have happened without Harold Washington. If right. Harold Washington hadn't come 20 years before him, right. he wouldn't have been elected to the right. United States Senate. Right. I, 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 I firmly believe that. Right. And so it shows a kind of progress, certainly, that a gifted individual coming along at the right time with just enough luck um, can do it. I mean, that, that, that means something, you know. Um, it does not mean that the country is cured of it, right. and, and he wouldn't even. Which it never this. would. Was no, going it, would, to it, mean. It, would, it would never signal signal that. Um, I think what you get from me is a question about, and then I, I, before I get to that, though, let me be very clear. There are also policy things that I think are really, really important. I actually think, you know, um, the architecture of Obamacare uh, actually opened the door for this whole conversation that people are having about single payer now. Mm -hmm. um, even though you know some of those folks are deeply critical, I think like the very fact that. that opens up, you know, bigger, you know, and, you know, uh, uh, broader things. I think um, his engagement, although I don't, I don't know where this is going to go, um, I think his engagement with the criminal justice system is really, really important. Um, I know that, you know, uh, activists who make a very, very credible case that clemency should have been used more, having said that, it was used more than, you know, any of his predecessors. Um, I think having an attorney general who uh, would go down to Ferguson and not just investigate the death of Mike Brown, but investigate the entire police department. I, I think that was huge. I'd never seen that mm -hmm. happen before. Um, uh, I don't think, obviously that's not, you know, where we are now. Um, but I think the fact that things get rolled back doesn't make those efforts insignificant. Ulysses Grant did a lot of great things, broke the Ku Klux Klan, you know, passed the first civil rights le legislation under him. And a lot of that was ultimately rolled back. That doesn't mean that he was, like those efforts are insignificant. Yeah, I couldn't though. agree with you more. Like, you I, don't know, I have this discussion with people away. all the time because they say, are you, or you must be grieving about the Obama nah, legacy. No being, the goalposts have been moved and they're right. never going to go all the way back right. to where they were. Right. And I think that's, if you believe that history is an incremental thing, right. uh, that is, uh, that's really important. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Tanahasi Coates. So you say that, um, but there is a sense in reading uh, what, you, what you write and, and your, your 
last essay in this book is the epilogue was the piece you wrote about mm-hmm. Trump mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, there is this persistent and almost un- inescapable kind of uh, you know heaviness that hangs over us this plague as it were mm-hmm. of uh, of race that goes back to the beginning of the republic and you feel Trump uh, is the manifestation of that. Yeah, although I probably would have felt that way even if Hillary Clinton had won. I felt that way before. Um, I think the very fact that Trump was the Republican nominee was was enough, that he was, you know, even plausible. And I would actually wind it back even... You see, those eight years when you could have taken a poll of the Republican Party and found at a minimum uh, uh, plurality and oftentimes a majority of voters that would tell you the president of the United States was not a citizen, mm-hmm. uh, that was dangerous. That that was dangerous. And if I have a critique, it's that that was not taken seriously enough. Um, that the, you know, because I think what, what, the, what Obama would often say is he, like, he really believed and in, in, in really believes in, you know, um, the best part of the country. And that the, the best part of the country, you know, has, has you know, this kind of uh, power, you know, that's truly different, you know, in, in terms of the history of the world. But there's a flip side of that, too. You know, a worse part that has, I think, a long record of having tremendous power also. Mm-hmm. Um, but doesn't it mean something? I, I, I don't. Sorry to interrupt. Sure, go ahead. No, no. But let's the, the part of his view was uh, informed by the fact that he ran for president twice. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the first president since I know these things, because they're always in my talking points, the first president since Dwight D. Eisenhower to win uh, two elections with more than 51% of the mm-hmm. vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were, uh, and, and you know, famously, and you address this in your essay, uh, uh, there were, you know, 200 counties where that he carried that Hillary Clinton didn't. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were in these white working class mm-hmm. uh, areas. Um, so... Um, but let me... Can I throw that back at you? Yeah, sure. I figure you might. What? No, and, and not even with a rebuttal, but with a question. Because yeah, the way yeah. I think about that, like when I hear those comparisons, it is as though um, you're holding constant the candidate. Um, like... Couldn't he just been that much of a superior politician? Yes, but it is. It's also true, Tanahasi, that he, you know, I, I, you've been pretty critical, and I've read every word of it of the, the uh, people who theorized that the absence of an economic message was part of the part of the the reason that. Well, Hillary, that it was the main reason. That, well, that yeah. it was the main. That's what I'm critical. I don't. Yeah. Listen, I want to be clear. I don't. I there are say a that million reasons, no reason. but that, but but that, you know. When we won in 2008 and when we won in 2012, there was a persistent economic message. Mm-hmm. And we went into uh, those areas with a very strong uh, economic message. I mean, he carried Indiana, the first time any Democrat mm-hmm. had carried it since 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and from the fall of 2011 to the fall of 2012, we were self conscious about talking about. Uh, the inequities in our economy and, fi- and 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 by the way, those inequities, I mean, nobody's felt those inequities more than the African-American community. Uh, and, you know, but um, 
everyone heard him talking about that. You know, Donald Trump said in this election the economy is rigged. We sort of addressed that. Obama was addressing that in 2012 and 2008. How would that have played if Obama had taken (laughs) – like if he had been out of government for a period and taken $400,000 in speeches from Goldman Sachs? It wouldn't have played well. It wouldn't have played well. Look – I, I mean, I've taken quite a bit of heat for the, my critique of the Clinton campaign and Hillary as a candidate, those decisions. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, way too facile to say it was Comey, it was the Russian, mm-hmm. even though I think those, you know, right. Comey probably cost her the election. But it's like when you have cancer and you die of pneumonia. Right. Right. You know, your your system was worn down by right. other things. So right. she was not a good candidate. And I, I, I make, you know, I don't, I'm sure I'll get trolled for saying it again. <laughs> she was not a good candidate. But, uh, and, and yes, race courses through our politics. It is something that's coursed through our politics from the beginning of the republic. Uh, you know, I think the Democratic Party, has been Democrat candidates, white and black, have been, uh, I think, uh, since the Civil Rights Act of mm-hmm. the '60s. This has been something that, you know, only Bill Clinton got forty-six percent of the Democrat of, of the uh, of the white vote right. in uh, 1992, and that was a high watermark, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, and so, race is there, and that's a, a big part of it as well. But a good candidacy and a good campaign could overcome that. And that what that says to me is that, you know, that Barack Obama got 51% of the vote twice. What percentage of the white vote? Do you remember what he got? He got uh, 40, maybe 42 or 3 in, in, two, in, in 2008 and, and probably 38 or 39 in 2010. And by the way, one other thing uh, about that is um, it is true that every cohort among white Americans voted for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. including college-educated mm-hmm. whites. But he got less of that college-educated white vote than any Republican. Yeah, you know, so when I hear that, and I've heard that. (laughs) um, I mean, I'm not sticking up for college-educated whites, but I'm just just, (laughs) just trying to poke around here. No, no, and and I'm I'm, I'm glad. This actually helps me clarify um, a little bit. Um, That, like, scares me. Like, that scares me because it's not simply, like, I I don't think it's the case that um, it's as simple as... um, White supremacy, bar none, in other words, without anything else, mm-hmm. made Donald Trump president. I, I don't think it's the case that, say, 60, 70 percent of his voters, you know, are racist and say, you know, X, Y, and Z. But I do think it's the case that a disturbing minority are, and the rest just overlooked it. That, mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, it is not the idea that they're burning crosses on the lawn that scares me. You know what I mean? It's the fact that it's not disqualifying. Right. That is scary, man. I mean, that... There, it, well, it does speak to... We, we have partisan tribalism as well, and that's part of it, you know? I mean, uh, we are more polarized than we've ever been before. But look, there's no doubt. It is incredible, the things that people were willing to overlook. Uh, and, you know, I think... I mean, I, as a commentator, looked through, through my elite lens and right. overrode all these objective signs that I should have been paying attention to that, no, this guy can win. Right. And he has a certain uh, genius for exploiting uh, these fault lines in our society in a, in a really uh, uh, I, I don't know if you remember this, though, but you said to me when I interviewed you, you said, 
And I think at this point you still thought Hillary was going to win. Or maybe not. You no, no, I think it was maybe after, but go ahead. Wasn't it? No, it was before. It was oh, before. was it? Yeah, and you said to me, ironically, he has the energy, not her. He, in other words, it right. was the Trump campaign that most resembled the Obama campaign in that sense. It had the energy yeah. in, in, in a way that— and um, Well, in, in certain ways, that was because the Obama campaign was an insurgent campaign. Right, right. We were, in, uh, you know— anti-Washington, right. uh, you know, reformist campaign. Now, right. ours, was, it was like the lightness in the dark. You yeah, know? yeah, I mean, and that, but that's my point but, right know. there. It was a different kind of energy, Oh, obviously. for sure. But it I mean, was, it was the it energy, was, it you know was, I mean? It was, there was, it was, in, there was, you know, we tried to affect a hope. When I talked to him, I've said this before here, when I talked to him about running in, in 2006, I talked about Robert Kennedy in 1968 and the kind of, uh, truth-telling and the kind of uh, relentless um, kind of commitment to this notion that we can actually change the world mm-hmm. and that we needed to recapture that. And we did recapture that. So that it was a different kind of energy. Let me ask you something else that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is this issue of the white working class. Mm-hmm. And you've had a lot of back and forth with people smarter than me, George Packer and others, well, on this on this subject. But but uh, but um, isn't it possible that more things are true than one? That that uh, th- the there are communities like if you look where in the Midwest where Trump did very well, mm-hmm. places where Obama had done well. Um, there is extraordinary dislocation. There's a lot of disruption. Mm-hmm. These revolutionary changes in our economy have, you know, ravaged some of these communities, and uh, and there's there was uh, there was a market for change. Forty percent of the people who voted in 2016 said that they wanted a candidate who could change Washington. That was the largest cohort of any of the mm-hmm. groups. Eighty-three percent of those voters voted for Donald Trump. I saw focus groups where a lot of these voters said, don't particularly like him, but she was like, she's Washington, Mm -hmm. you know, and at least he's going to blow the thing up. That doesn't mean that some people weren't motivated by race and that wasn't a subtext and so on. But, you know, uh, like I I was wondering, so this is leading up to this question, the book Hillbilly Elegy. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction to that? I haven't read it. I can't. Really? Yeah, I can't. I'd be be eager because, uh, you know, the, the description... J.D. Vance's description of his right. own life right. was uh, one of, you know, sort of disruption and family right. turmoil and right. economic struggle. And, you know, his, he discussed his community in, in that way and in ways that, you know, sometimes people talk about, uh, um, you know. In fact, he himself in the book said he was struck by there, were, there was racism in these communities. Right. Uh, but then people you know they were on they were on welfare they were right. they were they were you know there was a huge drug problem there was right. violence there was uh you know people failing to take care of their kids mm-hmm. and all of that stuff and uh and he was struck by that uh now none of this is to say the original sin isn't the original sin mm-hmm. i mean i believe that deeply right uh but i just think there's more stuff going on right now that is disrupting everything and making and creating opportunity, not just for Donald Trump in the U.S., but the right wing in Austria, the right wing in Germany, the right wing 
you know, in in De- in Denmark. That right. you know, so um, I just I think um, y- your arguments are really powerful. I just wonder if they're complete. Yeah, I think they are. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I make them. Um, <laughs> It's hard. So let me um, do. I believe that there is a section of white America, a relatively broad section of white America, that is, you know, suffering um, under the weight of deindustrialization, under the weight of you know a, a global economy, um, whose identity um, and, and way of life and income and ability to support a family is tied to a, a kind of America um, that is disappearing, and that. The people who run our politics have not done enough uh, to make sure those folks are taken care of. Yes. Yeah. I I don't have a problem, you know, saying that or believing that. Um, But I think two other things. I think um, that's not um, enough to get you excused from voting for someone who literally ran on a Muslim ban. I mean, his words, not mine, Um, who literally said that a judge uh, is not Mm -hmm. capable of adjudicating case because because he's, he's, and he just right. said it, right. just said it. Continue to maintain that a group of people, um, a group of young men in New York, long ago exonerated, um, were guilty, and you know, in his you know formulation, Central Park, Central Park Five, five deserve mm-hmm. deserve the death penalty. Um, look, I'm just talking about race here, man. I'm not even getting don't get to. Birtherism. I mean, yeah, don't forget birtherism, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm not even really getting to. I mean, the rank and obvious sexism. You know, listen, I, I wrote my piece from my one angle, but it's, you know, another angle that that piece could be from. I just, I, I don't think um, it's exculpatory to say, yeah, it wasn't the main reason, but I, I look past it. I mean, I think at any oppressive point, and if we went to the South in the 1940s, you went to North Carolina, South Carolina, how many people rabidly actually hated black people? And how many people were actually just sort of going along? But uh, there were a lot of people in the North who uh, were liberals, progressives, and right. so on, and a right. lot of African-Americans who voted for Franklin Roosevelt, who, as you pointed out, uh, made common cause with the Southern segregationists right. because he thought that was politically... There's no other now, choice. Now, there was no other choice. This wasn't like, you know, there, there was another viable... And, and, I, and I guess, like, to me, that's, that's the real difference, you know? Um, that's fair. That's and, fair. And I'm also formed by it, like this idea, like, you know, I can remember going to the Million Man March in 1995, right? Mm-hmm. Now, listen, Farrakhan, bigot, anti-Semite, homophobe, all of that. But the reasons for people going to the Million Man March were just as complicated, you know, as, you know, and they were actually very similar. <clears throat> None of the excuses that people bring up now for white working class people voting for Trump were brought up then. It was, why are all these black people but rallying the to the flag true, of an why, anti-Semite? Why? But 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 you clearly don't embrace anti-Semitism, homophobia, or any of those uh, those sort of unattractive elements of mm-hmm. of Farrakhan, and and you were there, and I don't for a second think that you're insensitive to those. Things. I don't think all the people voted for uh, Trump are you know uh, as I said racist or or, or or white. That's not the assumption, but I I make the assumption that they were willing to look past it for reasons, mm-hmm. you know. And I have to tell you that it's you know anybody that was going through the looked past it too. I mean, that's just the obvious truth. I think the difference is racism and white supremacy have a particular valence in American history that is very, very different. And so I think looking passive means it's something. We, we aren't in, you know, uh, Germany, for instance, right after the Holocaust. Um, but in America, we're in a place where Jim Crow is within li- living memory, you know. Um, and so I think 
I listen, I don't it's not that um I, I think like the argument gets mangled. Like I um feel like the individual person, like I'm making a moral argument against the individual person as a bad person. And more what I see is that um for what I, whatever reason, <clears throat> our history, our culture, well I know the reason, not for whatever reason, has basically made it so folks look past things that should not be looked past, that are mm-hmm. actually quite dangerous. Well, I would say this. He got 46% of the vote, uh, and he shouldn't have won. And we'll see what the 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 future holds. I, 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 that birtherism number didn't disturb you? That, like, that, you could, like, throughout Obama's presidency? No, it, I mean, it, of course could, it disturbed me. I mean, that, me. that would have scared the hell out of me, man. It, 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 of course it disturbed me. But, I mean, I saw the forerunners, a forerunner of that you know, at the Palin rallies mm-hmm. in uh, 2008. And, and I think, and I've seen this in our politics, uh, you know, for a long time. And, uh, you know, so, yes, it was disturbing uh, to me, but I also, he was president of the United States. But and- in the flip side of that, like, I guess what that means is, what we need is a string of politicians who are as gifted as Barack Obama. And I don't think that's going to happen. Well, um, yes, I think he was unique, in, and but I think there are other talented people out there, and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I mean, <laughs> I, somebody has to, somebody has to be hopeful, and it's not. And it's, so it's, guess it's going to have to be me. But listen, I love talking to you. I just oh, have to ask pleasure. you before sure. you go. Uh, just talk about what you're doing. I know you spent some time in Paris. I did. I did. Um, but I'm back now. I've been back since uh, I came back in 2016. Um, I'm living in New York. Uh, I am working on a comic book, which is a yes. lot of fun. Out of Black Panther, you were a big. Were you? Were you I was a huge comic book I was reader. A huge when I was Marvel comic comics. Book fan. I had all the. Yeah, no, no. I was a huge, huge fan yeah. when I was a kid. And now you're writing them. And I'm writing them, so it's like being a kid again. Um, I was literally on the plane working. You know, I was flying. But you're not. It's on. it's a comics comic books with a message. Yeah. I don't know. They always no more so than the com- than the comic books I grew up no, on, which no, had a actually, message. The Marvel too. comics always were. Yeah, no, there was always some sort of politics in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I think it's, I think I'm well within you know the tradition of that. Um, still, you know, get the punch bad guys and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am supposed to be on book leave uh, from the Atlantic, but I'm not. I'm working on a top secret project uh, for the for the magazine. Um and I just you know finished uh, that book the book we were That's, eight years in power this year yes which is highly highly recommended fantastically yeah and good so read I'm touring yeah, right provocative now yeah yeah well listen you you're you're a you're a gift and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and we're so happy you're here and grateful that you're going to be speaking here at the University of Chicago thanks David thanks for having. Me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 